a Highline podcast. All right. After a good 20 minutes of me just fumbling around with audio issues we are here so hello we welcome are, to the whiskey bench we are here i'm uh steven torna your uh incompetent <laughs> captain and uh you're not incompetent and i'm cap Twire. <laughs> the competent one no absolutely not no, no she's no. the tech guru oh my god so you know te- you know contact her at her that's, for all your tech questions. That's the uh, the, <laughs> the blind leading Helen Keller, yeah. as they say. <laughs> all right. Well, that was interesting. I got a, a apparently beautiful high-end new USB cord for my audio interface, thinking that it would help just crisp up audio even more, make it a little better, hopefully iron out some of the weird inconsistencies we get every now and again. But uh, apparently it's not just plug and play. You can't just plug in the cord Hmm. and it just works. It's like, we do not recognize this device. Oh, Lord. So, you know, whatever. We'll we'll, we'll fix that later. But I'm not too upset. It was a great week. So that's minor stuff. What did you do this week? It was a good week. It was a productive week at work. uh, And we closed the office early today because we're going to get rain all weekend. Uh So our... CEO Brian took pity on us and was like, go enjoy your, um, go enjoy your sunny afternoon. So I went and picked up some plants. This afternoon was. It was nice. Mm, nice. Mowed my lawns, planted some cosmos and salvia and violas. I spruced things up, filled in some holes from where things are growing in. What's a cosmo? It's a beautiful wildflower mm. um, that kind of has... It grows in these tall, thick stalks, and its leaves are kind of like spiny and thin. Spiny, like it'll hurt you if you touch it. No, spi- spiny in the sense that it's not like a broad leaf. Oh, gotcha. It's like Thinner. little individual yeah. like points of leaves together. Um, and then the flower itself has like a yellow center, and then um, I think like four or five like kind of broad petals. Oh, the ones I got are pink, and then. And I, every year I plant them, but like new ones come in, but it takes so long for them to grow that I like, I get starts and then I let the little guys come in. Oh, gotcha. So you kind of supplement. Yeah. Yeah. So these ones are pink. Last year I had orange ones grow in that were really pretty. So yeah. So how was your week? This week was good. Monday, Tuesday, I was in Billings. Um, I drove down there for some work, helping a buddy out, Mr. Derek, um, Got to see my mom and dad. That was nice. Met with a potential future client in Livingston on Tuesday. Wednesday was out at the warehouse. They poured concrete. So that's like primo. Now that's on hold for a while. Yesterday was out at the bunkhouse. That's that 1908 farmhouse. Oh, cool. With the dirt in the walls. Yeah, doing... Working down there. Nice. And then today, uh, looked at potential investment property, just helping someone figure out if it would be a good value purchase and things like that. Um, I don't know if it's even on the market, but spent. <laughs> it's 
All right. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to leave that one in. I'm wondering if anyone heard that. I just made a, a very delightful esophagus sound. A little gurgly. A little gurgles. So that's, you know, a little ASMR for, for our whiskey babies. Anyway, did a nice little walkthrough, spent a few hours checking stuff out, and then... Had a business meeting for another two hours, laying out scheduling for the next couple months, trying to figure some details. Had a killer lunch and a beer. Sounds great. Yeah. I mean, it was awesome. Nice. So, no, and good. then was able to come home a little bit early. I cleaned my room and got everything in order. And so, yeah. Ah, busy week. Like, got a lot done this week, but feels good. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I had two things that are relevant to Whiskey Bench. Oh, fire away. That happened at work this week. One, I learned, I guess this was the end of last week. Um, one of my colleagues listens to the show. Really? Yeah. Like, um, not, not like religiously, yeah. but more than once. But did you tell them about it? No. What? Yeah. Well, she knew it was my show. Oh, okay. Okay. And it's like in my bio on the website. But like, so somehow she learned about right. it. I think someone else that we work with mentioned it and she looked it uh, up and she's listened to it a couple times. I love it. And I was like, what episodes have you listened to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, thinking like, did you just listen to like the 2014 Dude, Ukraine? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Because I mean, that's a good episode. It is a really good episode, but it's also like, whoa. Yeah. Um, I forget. What did she say? She hadn't listened to those. She had listened to some older ones, I think. And then, uh, which is kind of funny. I'm realizing a lot of people just, I guess because we're not like a timely news podcast, people kind of just scroll through and pick and choose based on title and topic. Yeah. Yeah. Something that interests them. And yeah. And then it was really sweet. One of, we have interns in for the summer and we have Slack at my office and one of the interns slacked me yesterday afternoon and asked if we sell whiskey bench stickers. No way. Yeah. And I was like, hell yeah, we do. What? You listen to whiskey bench. And he said that he, when he was like preparing to come to perk, he had like yeah. read everybody's bio and he saw I had a podcast. He's listened to like a couple of the episodes and likes it. I got to meet him. I want to shake his hand. I know. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> He's so nice. We have two interns. The one who um, is listening to the show is from Texas and then the other one's from Florida. And it's so funny. There really is like a notable difference with like Southern gentlemanliness. Like it really, it's like oh, a thing. Oh yeah, for sure. It's really sweet. Like they're, they're just, they're, they're nice young men and are always offering to like help carry things or open doors. And stuff. <laughs> I love it. It's really I love nice. It. Yeah. They call everyone like sir and ma'am and uh, Mr. So and Mrs. And uh, one of our clients cute. who's just like incredible. I mean, amazing, amazing guy um, from Texas. And he's just so polite and kind. And yeah. And, you know, we had uh, a mom that we know working with us who we actually was a previous client. And she's just so like, she's just a go getter. We're like you, if you want to like come work with us, please. Like we would love you to come help. And so she works with us every now and again, like on days when the kids are gone and everything. And doing like yeah, manual she labor. Was doing demo and all sorts of That's stuff. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. She's cool. great. She's super fun. And Josh comes in and, and is meeting him and he like just noticeable things like walks in, notices her, instantly like goes up, takes his hat off, <laughs> goes, Hello, I'm Josh. Nice to meet you, ma'am. Like, welcome. Thank you for working here. And yeah, it's just like just noticeably just so intentional yeah. and kind. 
It's awesome. Yeah, it is. Like, it is a bit more. I mean, I'm sure it's just second nature and they're raised that way. But like mm-hmm. it does feel more intentional, right? Yeah. Or like a bit more thoughtful than normal interactions. So so anyway. Cool. Yeah. So we got a Texan listening to the show. I love that. Yeah. Shout out. So shout out to everyone listening. I think there's a couple other people that I know have tuned in recently. So that's exciting. <laughs> And I finally got to meet Zach, which I was yes. super stoked about. Oh man, we had a great brunch. Zach is the man. Like, we should. Have, I want to have Zach on at some oh, point. Oh, me too. I think he'd be. Whoa, he'd be great. I've been scouring eBay for some used audio equipment mm. to to get a set up to have upwards of four mics. Oh, that'd be fun. And I think getting three in here is completely doable. And even four, probably we could manage. But I think three would be a good dynamic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, for sure. It was at one point. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> then us. having three people in house would be super fun. So we'll see what we can make happen there. But mm-hmm. yeah, I would love to have Zach on. And Totally. Honestly, anyone. Guys. This is <laughs> anyone at all. No, well, no, but my point being, like, if you just want to, like, say you listen and you want to be on Whiskey Bench. Oh, yeah. Like, just reach out to us. Like, you can just D- slide into our DMs. Slide into the DMs. Like, you know, <laughs> maybe in the, the long scale trajectory of the show, like, this isn't smart, but. Right. You just come over to my house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. At least right now. Let's while not it's, dox well, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, it's fine. I'm pretty easy to, to find. So <laughs> the, uh, it's all right. So, yeah, come on over. I'll make you a cocktail. I'll cook you some dinner. And we'll talk down. We'll talk down to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll rip you apart. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, I don't know why I said down. Maybe I was going to say get down and then get also down talk. and talk. And, yeah, whatever. Um, come on by. Nice. What are we drinking tonight? Uh, tonight, we are drinking a buzzkill. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. This comes recommended from my friend Emily, who found this off TikTok from John Rondi. It's like a father-son combo. They do a bunch of videos. Okay. He might own a bar. I can't tell. Okay. But I was scrolling through tons of great drinks on there. So check them out if you're on TikTok. We have vodka, sour mix, St. Germain, and champagne. So now here's where things get weird. There's no ratios provided in like <laughs> any of his videos. He like starts pouring vodka and he goes, eh, enough vodka? And then he goes, enough St. Germain. And he's like, throw some sour mix in there. So I just watched it like five times and guessed how much that he poured in. Mm-hmm. So I went with two ounces of vodka, one ounce of sour mix, three quarter ounces of St. Germain, threw it on ice, gave it a good old shakedown, and then topped it off with a little bit of some champagne. So <laughs> I think I would go three quarter sour mix. It's a little sweet. Yeah. Or just up the vodka. Yes. So that's that's my take. Totally. But- yeah, I don't know if I love it. I don't think I like the sour yeah. mix. Maybe that's I see, and I like the Saint Germain. Everything else yeah. makes sense because the, the sour florally... mix feels odd. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, it sat for a couple minutes at this point. It did, yeah. But I, I actually really do like Saint Germain. So that elderberry flower or elderflower is, yeah. is tasty. What is Saint Germain again? Saint Germain is a French liqueur, very sweet, made with elderflower. Just nice, light, crisp, almost violety, not quite as pungent as like violet. And elderflower is the... Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think if you have that, you don't need the sour mix. Maybe not. 
The other thing too I think is, like just a ton of citrus. Yeah. Would the be other good. thing is I think you probably could mix it up a little bit and do like a little bit of lemon juice mm-hmm. instead of the sour mix. Yeah, exactly. And still get because I think the citrus is kind of essential. Yeah, no, I was gonna say more like actual fresh citrus. Yes, instead exactly. Of sour so mix. Yeah. If you don't like the sweetness of sour mix, right. throw some lemon in there. Yeah. Play around with it. I mean it's a it's a cool, cool drink. It's beautiful. I mean the color's great. Yeah. I've never done this with the garnish. I like I like how that looked. It's pretty. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Twisty lemon. And I, and I like a little bit of bubbly on the top. It's a nice. Yeah. It's also my bubbles a little flat. So. I was going to say, I think, <laughs> I think that's a part of the yeah, <laughs> so, challenge you know. here too. It's good though. It's good. Man, that's two weeks in a row. We've been less than enthused. Or Bev's. What are you going to do? I like it. I'll, I'm going to make it again. I'm going to tweak it a little bit. I'll stop talking to you no, about no, it. No, no, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> but it also has a great name, the Buzzkill. So it does. That's appropriate for tonight's topic, very, I think. Very apt. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, we've we've mentioned this before. This is kind of the downer series, so <laughs> this episode's another buzzkill. Um, as you may very well know, if you've been listening to this series, we are going to dive into talking about... Nazis, neo-Nazis in Ukraine specifically. We touched base a little bit on that the last episode. Yeah. And there's going to definitely be some review, at least how I have my notes laid out. Okay. I'm going I'm to cover some of the stuff we talked about last time. Sure. Um, and then we'll just truck along. All right, whiskey babies. Before we continue, we got to take care of some business. This episode of Whiskey Bench is brought to you by Fife Created, a woman-owned and operated small business creating beautiful handmade clay jewelry, lovingly crafted right here in Montana. And they're a small business run by normal people just like us. My personal fave off the website is the Angelique. It's a beautiful black and white marbled hoop, totally a statement piece, and it's only $21. Yeah, you can't beat that. And I was exploring and diving through her spring 2022 launch that she just put up on the website. And I loved the Leah's. Now, I always notice earrings, but this is particularly amazing. It's just like three-tiered geometric earring um, with like cream, pink, and magenta, and gold accents. Like if I saw those, I mean, boom. Ladies, it gets a man's attention. Yeah, which, you know, <laughs> maybe you care, maybe you don't, but right. <laughs> they're beautiful, honestly. And there's a lot of great options on there. Definitely hop on the website. They can all be found at fifecreated.com. That's F-Y-F-E created.com. She has a really cool subscription service where you can sign up and hand curated earrings are sent out every month to you with free shipping so over the course of a year you'll get 12 new earrings i mean that's that's awesome that's a great idea it's kind of amazing yeah everyone's moving to subscriptions nowadays so that's the way to go and like how happy would you be every month when your earrings arrive very exactly (laughs) so please hop on there check them out if there's one that you love you can use promo code whiskeybench2022 at checkout and you'll get 20 percent off your order there you go. Spice up your life. Add a little color. Fife created. If you listen to the last episode, we reviewed 
tail end of our history segments. We did, you know, 2004 through 2014. Uh, We're going to back up a little bit. We're going to go more back to our first episode where we talked about the history through World War II and all of that. That's an important part of this story to understand. And then we'll move forward all the way through what's going on here. I will say my information is seriously lacking in the periods of like the late 60s through like the nine early 90s. I, I could not find good information on what these groups were doing in Ukraine during that time other than all of the CIA ops and stuff that we'll, we'll dive into here very shortly. It always comes back to like CIA <laughs> and FBI ops. They tend to have their fingers in yeah, a lot of stuff. Little, little sticky fingers and everything. Yeah. We are going to dive in, jumping back to 1941. And this is when the German invasion began in the USSR, as we've mentioned before. As the Germans pushed through, the Russians were forced to retreat. They killed all their political prisoners. You know, they torched. It was their scorched earth tactic. They burnt down everything on their way out. As we had mentioned, you know, they moved. The Nazis did or the Soviets The Soviets did? on their okay. way out of Ukraine, kind of the, to sabotage it. So they were blowing up buildings. Oh, to sabotage it for the Nazis. Yep, destroying crops and food reserves. Um, they flooded mines. And then, you know, something like four million people were evacuated. You know, they were pulling Ukrainians and Russians alike out. And as we mentioned before, this led to some of those repopulation projects and things like that. Later, the Germans rolled through. They occupied Ukraine. A lot of the Ukrainians at the time kind of embraced the German invasion, thinking like, oh, okay, it's not the USSR. Which context, we mentioned this yes. in our a couple episodes ago, but this was after uh, the Holodomor. So they've been, mm-hmm. so the Soviets have been brutally cruel and starving to death millions of Ukrainians. Correct. So yes, when the Nazis arrived, they thought, some of them thought, oh, are, these, uh, hey. are they going to be liberators? Right. Or at least they weren't thinking this this can't be that much worse. Couldn't be worse, right? Right. Especially if the Soviets are like doing a scorched earth policy as they're yes. retreating. Yes. But quickly by that fall, because this was, I think, German Germany invaded Ukraine like in June. And so by the fall, they started implementing their racial policies that had been seen before with the mass killing of Jews, which extended from 41 through 44. Something like 1.5 million Ukrainian Jews were murdered. Almost a million displaced. You know, horrible mass graves in Kiev. There's the, the Babi Yar, which was like a mass grave of 100,000 Jews. Oh, man. 34,000 Jews were killed like in the first, it was like the first two days in Kiev. And this is where, this is where the roots of, of Ukrainian Nazis starts. Because the Germans had these death squads that they created during World War II, whose sole purpose was to round up Jewish people and any dissidents, but particularly Jewish people, and um, do the dirty deed, the murdering, throwing them in graves, things like that. And the Nazis started to recruit auxiliary forces of Ukrainians that were anti-Semitic and willing to do that. Right. And so they started to create these assets and build up these elite groups of just ruthless murderers within Ukraine. And like I said, these are Ukrainian people that were 
deeply entrenched in this four-year campaign. Very, very disturbing. I wonder if I have notes here. Where is it at? This is important. There's a really good Britannica article that I will note here. Um, here we go. So um, this auxiliary group of, of uh, Nazis that were doing all of these uh, killings was an insurgent group called the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. O-U-N. Yep, O-U-N. And CIA operations have said on the note, I don't have the name of the actual guy, but this is a quote from a CIA operation chief. He said they were Nazis, pure and simple. Worse than that, because a lot of them did the Nazis' dirty work for them. And this goes back to, like I said, these groups were called the uh, Einstatsgruppen. Yeah, they just rounded up Jews and murdered them all across Eastern Europe. They were in Poland, Ukraine, everything like that. So I'm going to leak that. Britannica has a really good article on it. Obviously, it's dark stuff. <laughs> Prepping for this was definitely something that I had to take in, in waves because it gets a yeah. bit much to to have to dive into this. But that, like I said, this is really the kind of roots of that and, and the Germans getting a footing in Ukraine and uh, recruiting the people that were open to such radical ideas. We then see Russia pushes back the Germans. You have people like Bandura, which we'll get into a little bit more detail soon, who we mentioned in the last couple episodes. Nazi sympathizer at best and an actual Nazi at worst. And Right. There's debate mm-hmm. on that, but... Well, he kind of straddled the line between... Yeah, I think he definitely... I think it's fair to say he was definitely a Nazi sympathizer. Yep. But also was like... But also was a nationalist and like wanted a Ukraine... Like an independent Ukrainian country. Right. right? Like he didn't, he didn't... Right. He didn't want the Germans to occupy Ukraine. No. But he, he like embraced he, their ideology. Exactly. Yeah. And so he was the leader of the OUN... Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and he became a Nazi collaborator and lived with deputies from the German, well, okay, so after World War II, when he was expelled, he then took refuge with all sorts of German protection. And didn't the Germans after the war also, like, he made enemies with them too, didn't he? Probably, because there's kind of like a bait and switch there, Like, like you said, he didn't want the Germans to be there. Right. But, yeah. What's interesting is the Nazis recruited Bandera and the OUN to act as policemen in Ukraine during World War II. And then also those, you know, in quote, policemen were then formed into army battalions, aiding the Germans fighting in Ukraine. And then as we saw, as the Russians were pushing back Germans, a lot of these militia forces were now, you know, wreaking havoc on the Red Army from, you know, behind enemy lines and behind the Red Army, aiding the Nazis, which is eh, wild. Bandera has popped up many, many times. There's statues of him all across Ukraine. There's annual marches in his name, like massive groups of marching with like icons of him, tiki torches, like wild stuff. And as Um, the Zelensky praised him not that long ago. I was going to say, as yeah. the as the Russian group, as the Ukrainian uh, government over over the last, yeah. you know, whatever, how many decades, um, you know, mm-hmm. since the forties have, well, excuse me, that's idiotic. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, so since the nineties, uh, as it's volleyed back and forth between like pro-Russian, pro-like West factions. There has been like the pro West factions have venerated Bandera. 
Yeah. And the pro-Russian ones have like outlawed those gatherings and things. So there's, yeah, he's kind of this symbol of an independent Ukraine. Yes. And Zelensky, like I said, in last year made public statements on it and said like, Hey, there's good reason why people should celebrate him and so on and so forth, which seems wild to me, but right. Whatever. But again, I think uh, it's because he, because he, aside from like, you know, right. it was like, this, Oh, he just wanted to free Ukraine. Right. Never mind. He killed, you know, led the killing of tens of thousands, tens of, Jews of thousands. I mean, polls. I mean, there was like 4 million, 4 million people killed in Ukraine and yeah. he played a huge part in that. And you what know? they did to the polls was like, oh, he yeah. like led that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, here's an example. There's a statue of Mandera in a Galician town of Johabich, um, which was a location where 15,000 Jews were taken from their house and murdered. Oh, man. They put the monument on the site of a former Jewish ghetto. And it stands there to this day. Wild. What part of Ukraine is that? East Galatians. So I don't know where, where that's at, frankly, but it's interesting. They also, this, this article I was reading noted that there is no memorial to the Jewish that died in that town. Just, just unfortunate reality that, you know, this is going on. This again, remember, this is all in the 40s. It's uh, the western part of Ukraine. Okay, so this is where Adjacent things kind of start to get. Interesting. Later, after World War II, Bandera's OUN still was in operation, still very much existed and was entrenched in Ukraine. And the CIA, starting in 1948, started recruiting Bandera's men. And Bandera at this point, was he exiled? He at was this exiled, point? Okay. yes. Which I don't even have, I might have some details on that. That's crazy too, like KBG got him like years later, you know, whatever. Bandera said one CIA report from 1948. So this is classified stuff that has been released. There's a ton of information out there. I couldn't even read all of the crazy ops that have been released that I didn't even know about, right? But he said, uh, said one CIA agent from a 1948 report is by nature a political intransient of great personal ambition who has opposed all political organizations in the immigration which favor a representative form of government in Ukraine. As opposed to a mono party. And this is the state, you know, the position of the OUN Bandera regime. So again, I mean, there were, there were radicals. They, they wanted to control government. They didn't want the form of government that the West wanted them to have. All these things, right? right? So Bandera, not a fan of him. Ukraine in like 2019, I think, officially gave him the like reward as like a national hero. Hmm. It's just something that's going on, you know, be aware of it, contemplate it. I mean, it's a, it's a thing, right? So obviously, you know, we're, we're getting uh, at the end of, oh, go ahead. This is from the New York Times, but it's from 2011. Mm-hmm. Yanukovych, Yanukovych had given Bandera the Ukraine's highest, mm-hmm. one of its highest awards, a hero of, hero of Ukraine, or excuse me, I have that backwards, Yushchenko. That's right. Who came to power after the Orange Revolution in that contested election. Yes. Gave Bandera the Hero of Ukraine award, posthumously, obviously. And then uh, when Yanukovych came in, he revoked it. Yeah. And again, Yanukovych was the pro-Russian leader who was ousted in 2014. So another perfect example of how he, Bandera, has been this like symbol of the division between 
Ukraine and the fight between the East and the West. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that wraps up World War II, essentially. There was other, you know, neo-Nazi groups around, but Bandera was a, a major figure. Like I said, worked hand-in-hand hand with the Nazis, led these squads, was responsible for at least a million deaths, like directly responsible for at least a million deaths. Can I share something yeah. about related to the CIA stuff? Yeah, because that's what I want to dive into next. Because Oh, okay, dive into it. No, no, continue, but that, that's the next part, right? World War II ends, and... Yeah. and by 1948, the CIA has started operations in Ukraine. Yes. Yep. So if I, if I may, can yeah. I just, okay. Um, You're the one that brought this to my attention. You were like, did you know? And I was like, no, I did not it's, know. It's insane. Yeah. So uh, we'll share a link to this story in the show notes. But there was a CIA operation called Red Sox, S-O-X, that started in 1949. And the goal was to sort of infiltrate resistance movements in Ukraine at this point, it's obviously under Soviet control, right? Mm -hmm. So the goal of the U.S. was to infiltrate these resistance movements in Ukraine to undermine and potentially overthrow the Soviet government. So, and it was also meant, you know, at this point, the Iron Curtain was up and the U.S., you know, we went from helping win the war with Russia or helping Russia win to them being our number one enemy in the world. And we had no information we had it was a black box right mm -hmm. so in addition to trying to like destabilize the soviets uh the goal of these operations was also to try to gather intelligence during operation red sox 85 agents total were sent um and an estimated two-thirds of them were captured and tortured and killed yes so not a high success rate i'm just gonna read from this story that uh politico put out guys I don't know how many people look at links of our, our notes. Read this article. It is so good. Especially for this series. Yes. The stuff we're sharing is like, I encourage people to yes. like check it out. Like that is one of the better articles I've read in a long time. Yeah. Super interesting. Super informative. Comprehensive. Yes. Detailed. Yeah. Okay. So I'll just read an excerpt from it. It's a little long, but um, bear with me. So it says... By September 1949, the operation was ready and the first flights launched. Ukrainian commandos successfully crossed into Soviet airspace, touching down in western Ukraine in the heart of the Ukrainian resistance to Soviet occupation. And at first, everything appeared to go well. Messages were laid back to American handlers via new electronic equipment smuggled behind Soviet lines, talked of operational success. Optimism continued to grow as month after month, drop after drop, the same rosy messages came back. Yet back in Washington, concerns started to grow. On the one hand, there was the reality of who these Ukrainian emigres were actually linking up with. The main body of Ukrainian insurgents, and in particular, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN, had already been linked directly to Nazi atrocities in the region. Quote, they were Nazis, pure and simple, one CIA operations chief said. Oh, you've already said I this did quote. Say this quote, but continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> quote, worse than that, because a lot of them did the Nazis dirty work for them. Beyond those concerns about enabling fascists, there was also increased understanding of how the Soviet secret police and counterintelligence operations actually worked and how little success an operation like Red Sox would likely have in a place like the USSR. Quote, you're sending people into these Soviet controlled areas, Poland or Ukraine or whatever, with the idea that they're going to start resistance groups or meet up with the ones already there, one CIA station chief remembered. But it's impossible that these resistance groups can exist under the Soviet security system. It's a dream. It can't work. You're just sending people to their deaths, end quote. 
If anything, Anderson added, those supposed anti-Soviet resistance groups the CIA thought it was helping support were in reality, quote, catchment, catchment basins in which the regime's enemies, both internal and external, could be concentrated and safely confined until the state was ready to scoop them up. So sort of implying that like the Soviets were aware of these groups and they let them do their thing until they could take them out. Okay, and this, the excerpt goes on. All of which was precisely what happened up and down the region. It was a reality that took the U.S. years to catch on to. In Russia, agents parachuted in only, parachuted in only to promptly disappear. In Poland, trained agents suddenly appeared on state radio claiming they'd engaged in criminal anti-Polish activity, all on behalf of a completely fabricated Polish nationalist group. In Latvia, in Lithuania, in Estonia, all of the supposed resistance groups were either hoaxes or thoroughly controlled by the KGB, Anderson wrote. Over and again, Soviet intelligence had, con- had conned the gullible Americans, sending the exiles directly to their death or imprisonment. But it was in Ukraine that the Americans saw arguably their worst embarrassing fiasco. To be sure, there had been a, ver- a veritable resistance movement in the region immediately after the war. But by the time the Americans launched their operation, the resistance had already been effectively decimated, hobbled by KGB penetration in an unrelenting Soviet pursuit. The Americans, however, had no idea. Quote, buoyed by Soviet disinformation, Anderson wrote, the CIA continued sending dozens and dozens of operatives into the region, even through the mid-1950s. Instead of sparking rebe- rebellion, some three-quarters of the trained agents simply disappeared into the Soviet maw. Many of the agents were not on the ground for more than a few hours before they were arrested and shot, one later analysis found. Without the U.S. even realizing it, Moscow had dismantled one of America's most significant covert operations across Europe wild yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely wild and this is something interesting too just to kind of further understand the influence and and how so much of this nazi ideology was able to maintain a holding in ukraine is that after world war ii the cia turned around and hired his name was reinhard galen to be the head of the cia operation in berlin and ukraine and he was the head of intelligence for the Western Front for Hitler. Wait, repeat that? Reinhard Galen, you should look him up. Horrible human being. Like, top-ranking official, head of intelligence on the, on, the, on the front for Hitler himself. After World War II, they recruited him. The Just, CIA did. Yeah. Hmm. To, to lead the operations out of Ukraine. Wow. And they and that's 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 something they started a physical headquarters in Ukraine. Wow. So and he was head of operations. And this is the same thing. I mean, the U.S. immediately after World War Two in deals with these war criminals basically just said, hey, if you will come work for us and develop weapons or develop science, you know, all of the doctors responsible for like the units, what is it, 731 in Japan, some of the most horrific war crimes ever occur. They got off scot free because they gave America their research journals. Right. We hired countless Nazis to do our research for the development of, you know, nuclear weapons and long range missiles and, you know, all this stuff. Right. It's like, Oh, you're too smart to, you know, be executed. They had value. Right. Exactly. Can I, I'm just connecting something here. Yeah. So that political story and like the records, indicate that 
you know, these operations were successful because the Soviet state was so their security state was so mm-hmm. deeply entrenched and, and well orchestrated, right? And finely tuned. And so the Soviets were to a large degree keeping these resistance movements from growing. Right. But at the same time, the US is using all of its not all of its resources, but the resources it could expend towards this to keep those resistance movements alive. Yeah. So we're kind of responsible for keeping those movements alive. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, yeah. And so, as we mentioned before, like when the CIA in 1948 first started this, it was an absolute disaster, right? Yeah. And they yeah. started to shift their tac- tactic. And this is why, like, it, it spurred the CIA to try to come up with a plan of how to to handle this and and there's all sorts of interesting like uh records from declassified stuff where like cia agents are discussing this and they're like we came up with a plan that we needed to recruit exiles from ukraine during world war ii which led tended to be ultranationalists neo-nazis things like that smuggle them back into the soviet union and this is at a time where Right before, like, the space race and a lot of the technological advancements that Russia found, the U.S. was ahead. So, Russia had horrible air defense. That's why we were able to just fly people in. And we had that little window of opportunity where our tech was ahead. So, we had better comms. You know, we thought we better implement this ASAP. And that's how they were able to just fly and smuggle people in. Right. The CIA wanted to be fed intelligence. They wanted to aid in all of the anti-Soviet movements. Which, as we mentioned before, with like crime circles in Russia, the most anti-Soviet thing is Nazis. Right. So you just tend to, if you want to aid hardcore anti-Soviet movements, it draws a certain kind of person. Especially the ones that are willing to like form a militia. And right. Be and violent. remember, guys, this yeah. is 1948. Right. This is right after all of this is going down, right? Right. And then kind of, you know, to put a cherry on the top, the second... Part of the brilliant plan was the CIA decided that they needed to arm these groups. And so starting before 1950, we were pumping money and weapons into extremist groups in Russia with the goal of undermining and destroying the Soviets. Plain and simple. And the Soviets were evil. Yeah. So... You know, yeah. you can kind of understand the logic. And the thing but... was, is this was during like the, the Red Scare and all this stuff. Right. So there was massive marketing of, hey, this is just for liberation and the overthrow of communism, which it really wasn't. They didn't care about that, really. Honestly, like, I don't think they cared about Ukraine being liberated. No. They just cared about Russia being defeated or the Soviets. Right. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah, of course. So, and and then they you could make the argument that had Russia not yeah. been defeated, that they would, I mean, they were trying to defeat us, right? Yeah. Oh, no, totally. So, yeah, they didn't really care about the lives of Ukrainians, but helping Ukraine defeat Russia was a way of defending us from yeah. Russia in their mind. Yeah. And um, CIA agents have claimed in other declassified articles, um, one CIA agent said the ult- ultimately an operational base would be achieved in Ukraine, which we saw physical operational base out of Ukraine. We had the Nazi running it, a literal Nazi running it. Wild, you know? Yeah. And it's just interesting, too, because they know it was they knew it wasn't working. And so for, like, years, they literally were just, like, sending grand Nazis, but they were just sending people in to Soviet territory to just, like, instantly be torn.
tortured and murdered and killed. Right. Yeah. Which is wild as well, right? It's like just fodder. Like Oh maybe, yeah. It's Nazi fodder, but it's fodder. Like right. you know, something to be aware of at least. Moving forward just a little bit, because you know, there was this ten year period or so where like their plans weren't working, but they were kind of just beating a dead horse. They're like, all right, we'll just keep doing this. Like Yeah. It doesn't matter. We'll just we'll keep trying. So they just kept throwing people at it and arming groups and training them and working with, you know, extremists and things like that. So we have by 1959 Bandera coming back into the the picture, trying to run a new generation of Ukrainian agents out of West Germany because he had taken refuge with the Germans. And so previous Nazis had kind of sheltered Bandera in Germany. And then General Reinhardt, who we mentioned just a little bit, who was the head of the BND, which was the CIA group. I don't remember what that stands for, but BND was a United States implemented organization. Had led uh, the German army intelligence in the USS during the war. He had his subordinates like study Bandera, get up to date with him. And by like 60, uh, Reinhardt had found success in penetrating into the Soviet realm. So like at this point, they actually had successful like sleeper agents and things like that within the Soviet circle that were successfully feeding information. And it kind of all came to a, a pinnacle here. KGB ended up, you know, you, you don't know the details of the KGB side, but like they found out about this. There was this connection to Bandera and that like Reinhard was studying Bandera and there was a connection. And so uh, October 14, 1959, Bandera was having lunch with some senior BND officials to ex- to discuss expansion of operations in Ukraine. So Bandera was working with the U.S. and this Nazi to like expand the program, and KGB assassinations uh, killed him in a department building in Germany. Right? So right, they figured yeah. this all out. They yeah. hit. They, they got a hit on him. Knocked out. And this is the era of spy versus spy, right? Right. We had Soviet spies in the U.S. at our universities and elsewhere and vice versa, obviously. And yes. Yeah. And so this is where there's this weird I have. There's this whole history of Bandera and the Nazis operating this B&D unit out of Ukraine. And then there's this weird 1960 to like the 90s that I don't really have information of what was going on. With the Nazi groups in Ukraine. Yes. Mm. But we know that the CIA has been entrenched in there and still is entrenched in there. And we know that the KGB was entrenched in there all the way through the end of the 80s, into the 90s. And then, you know, there was a transitionary period and now there's some other form of intelligence, right? So they're still at odds, right? I think it's safe to say (laughs) both organizations, whatever form of KG, you know, whatever the KGB is now and whatever the BND is now. Yeah. They're still at odds. The FSB and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. BND exactly. Turned into. So I don't really know what's yeah, you're right. happening there. You're right. It's uh, their titles and costumes have changed, but right. it's the same battle happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intelligence battle. So. Using Ukrainians as their fodder. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it's the same. Yeah, situation. yeah exactly. And, you know, this is an important note just before I jump forward to like the 2000 or late 90s where we start to get into these modern groups that we discussed last time mm-hmm. that are in play right now. These BND and CIA op 
found pretty good success. And so the numbers that I've seen is that since 1948 to like the fall of the USSR, they successfully with the BDN program located and killed 35,000 members of KGB. Wow. Or associates. You never know. I'm sure a lot of those were fodder. Yeah. But, you know, so that it was it was entrenched warfare, which is so interesting too. you know, you, you hear about the Cold War and all this stuff. And it's like we, both parties had active atrocities being committed against each other. Right. Like, yeah, if you are killing thirty five thousand people, I don't mean to laugh and be sick, but it's like it's yeah. almost funny, like to be like, oh, yeah, you know, the Cold War, like, you know, well, it's kind it's of not a hot war or whatever. And you're like, yeah, OK. This is, I mean, I, it's, I think it says a lot about us on the flip side. It's also like, well, it was cold in some ways for like our, for, you know, the American people, but the cold war is kind of a insulting name because it was just the era of proxy wars. It was just the era of like everybody else suffering, you know, other peoples and faraway lands suffering yeah. because of yeah, our war. Exactly. Right. But it was cold because we didn't right. feel it or know exactly what was going on. Yeah. And the other thing is during this time, the CIA in Ukraine was using these paramilitary ultranationalist groups to infiltrate Russia. And then within Russia were committing acts of terrorism, mm. posing as Soviets to you know further undermine. And I'm sure Russia was doing the same thing. So it's like, yeah. And then also right? like throughout this yeah. entire era, like the Soviets are right. You know, it's a police state and they're rounding up yeah. dissidents and yeah, murdering exactly. people. And it's horrific. Right. I and mean, the but whole it's like, thing. It's just interesting. Right. Like, yeah, they're committing acts of terrorism against their own people for the greater good. Right. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. Well, Putin's uh, it's, you know, not necessarily proven, but it's largely assumed that he blew up a oh yeah uh, apartment complex to like aid in his election because right, right. he was bringing so, order and peace so right here, so th- so this yeah. this ties into it this is this is important cat i will not be anything other than incredibly critical of ukraine because i don't think it's so simple as ukraine good russia bad and we've said this before yeah right right our our goal I think this is fair to include you in this. Our goal is to shed light on the fact that there is a problem in Ukraine with Nazis that the U.S. has been funding, training, and preserving for 70 years. Right. And that is evil and corrupt. And that can simultaneously go hand in hand with complete and total rejection of any legitimacy in Putin invading Ukraine. Completely agree. Right. Very and, well and, said. And the, and, the, and the narrative now is like, yeah. if you're not pro-Ukraine, Putin sympathizer. Yeah, that was almost like a subconscious reflexive me right. wanting yeah, exactly. to not like, be a Putin sympathizer. Like, right, yeah, right. you're right. You're right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But yeah. I, I know why. I know. Like, yeah. right. You want to, you feel like, well, yeah, we're not saying that like Putin didn't do this, but like, you know, we're talking about Ukraine right now. We're going to talk about Russia. Like, yeah, totally. We're going to get there. Totally. Like, believe me, like this is two evil things clashing right right and it's like your tax dollars helping 
fund it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. So we'll get there. But yeah, just just know, like we're being harsh. Like we said, I think we, was it last episode? We're like, yeah, it's not like the good versus evil. It's just like, you know, two. There's no good but good guy, really. Like, yeah. No, I, I just, kind of in isn't. This, in this conflict, I don't think there's a good guy except for innocent Russians and innocent Ukrainians right. that are going to be slaughtered because of it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But, you know, that's fun. So, like I said, there's this little dead period, 1960 to whatever, the 90s. And then we get into our modern groups. So I would like to to dive a little bit into that. There's not any real order to my notes per se, but uh, let's let's dive into Sabota, I guess. Sabota was formed in 1991 under the title Social National Party of Ukraine, which, interesting enough, was started by a group that were Soviet Afghan War veterans, or from the Soviet Afghan War Veteran Organization. Mm. They were a ultranationalist party that also were publicly anti-communist. And then in the late 90s, they started recruiting skinheads and using Nazi symbols openly. Ola uh, Tannenbach, who we've mentioned, I think, in the last two episodes, is the leader of Sabota, which is just straight up a neo-Nazi fascist group. As we mentioned before, like there's weird interactions. You know, Biden's had interactions with him. John McCain had interactions with this guy. Yeah, during the 2014 uprising, John McCain was on stage with this yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell, talking about how he's a freedom fighter and that the U.S. Yeah, supports exactly. him. And so, you know, and like we had mentioned before, it's like it's just because the U.S. wanted to use these powerful militia groups to I, implement their own puppet regime in Ukraine. As we'd been trying to do since 1948. Yeah, 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 exactly. Since 1948. So Tenenbach ended up becoming the leader in 2004, which conveniently was during the color revolution there. His goal or his stated goal um, was to start organizing and trying to, in quote, moderate their image, right? As like a PR stunt. <laughs> right. Well, because they realized the yeah. money would start to dry up from the West if they were too blatant. Exactly. Right. And so public statements from them said that they, they you know, were on a campaign to expel neo-Nazis and fascists once they were starting to get into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. They did, however, never denounce their rooted belief in ethnic ultranationalism. Or As reject we, Bandera or no, no, any not, of none that. No, of that, right? Yeah, um, right, right. As we had mentioned before, the party actually started to really grow in popularity. They garnered many seats within parliament. They became a legitimate political party. I think they had got something like 10% of the vote for various seats. There's a Svoboda member in parliament in Ukraine right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me just say his name real quick, just so it's on Please, record. Please, that'd be great. Ok I, I'm going to butcher it, obviously. Yeah. Oksana Savchuk. Okay. And you can look up the list of current members of parliament on Wikipedia. And this guy doesn't have Wikipedia yeah. says we do not have an article with this exact name. Yeah. So there's no information about him, but he is a part of the Svoboda party. That's yeah. his affiliated public party. Yeah. And then um, where they really came into the spotlight is during the Maidan revolution. 2014, they were key in the violence, fighting police, disturbing things. You know, we had mentioned the massacre, you know some of their members as you know there's a lot of theories that we went through in the last episode about what actually happened and who was responsible but there's plenty of evidence to at least support or further support the idea that these neo-nazi groups were hired to kill civilians and police alike to further disrupt what was going on 
Um, and then they openly and annually celebrate Stepanbadon. Stepanbadon. Padon. Stepanbadon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so they also uphold him as a as a major figure. But you know, and as we had mentioned before, in 2014, I think Savota had six major posts in the government, and these were like high-ranking officials that were running the country. Oh, when after the coup and we helped orchestrate who yes. was going to be in power, there were Svoboda members, like, yeah, in the highest ranks. Right. And immediately after getting into the ranks, members like Svoboda were putting in Capitol buildings, Confederate flags, U.S. Confederate flags, as well as Nazi symbolism, you know, Nazi iron crosses. Uh, I believe Sabota's emblem is basically like a black swastika over like yellow. It's the, it's like um, the iron wolf or something or the wolf. It, this is the same symbol that they all kind of use it. Azov uses it too. Yeah. It's called the, in German, it's the wolf symbol. Yes, the wolf symbol. And it's a Nazi symbol that was used by their SS division. And then I don't know if Sabota uses this, but they Azov does. They also use does. SS a lot, yeah. They use the black sun, which yep. is also like a Nazi symbol. Mm-hmm. And it's on their uniforms, it's on their flags, it's on their uniforms today. When you look at pictures of Azov Battalion members, like, it's a part yep, of it. Yep, it's a major part of it. Yeah. They're still floating around, like you said. There's a member in in Parliament. They're they're actively, since 2014 to now, they've been fighting on the front. Again, people, I don't know if people realize, like, there's literally been a war going on. Right. Yeah. For 10 years almost. Right. Like, fighting, right. people dying. Yeah. You know, tens of thousands of people dying. Right. Um, but they're, you know, they're on the front line. They're legitimate forms of, you know, they're legitimate members of, of government. They're around. I don't know the size of them. I couldn't find any accurate numbers that claims how many members they have, things like that. But that's one group. Again, active today. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Ravel. The concept of blessing is fundamentally different from the concept of luck in that people who believe in God's blessing tend to believe, in my experience, that God does privilege people over other people. Mm. And I think that that's wrong. Like, I don't think you should believe that, but maybe he is making a conceptual connection. Well, because if you think about it, to be blessed is basically like a divine aid, like God aiding you in something. Emily, do you believe that God blesses people in that way? Or in any way. That's tricky. <laughs> and now, back to our conversation. Um, next up, I have a little bit on right sector, a little bit more recent. They were formed in 2013, right before the Maidan Revolt. Uh, they're self-described as a far-right paramilitary organization. They were directly responsible for deployment of street violence, or, well, of deployment of street fighters who clashed with riot police in Kiev. Massive marketing campaigns to encourage people to bring bottles, Molotovs, mm. as well as bombs. And then they became a legitimate political party in 2014. And in 2014, had 10,000 
active members. Um, we also have CIA training right sector. The founder, Dmitry Yarosh, was directly trained by the CIA. The battalion was armed by the CIA. Dmitry Yarosh is a person who, in the last episode, the quotes from him are like, my sole purpose is to like, you know, exterminate Jewish people and, you know, degenerates and all this stuff. Like, straight up. Yeah. Nazi manif- manifesto. Also, interesting little side side note about him. Yeah. Um, so it was him who. So right as everything kind of came to a head mm-hmm. during the 2014 revolution, sort of Western powers were trying to come to an agreement with Russia mm-hmm. in Ukraine to basically have like a ceasefire and then wait, keep the current, keep the government Yanukovych in power and then have a new election and international community would monitor it, whatever. Yeah. And Yarosh is the guy who literally like got up on stage February 21st, 2014, mm-hmm. and basically said like, we're not fucking agreeing to this. Mm-hmm. And these paramilitary groups were so powerful and like played a huge role in getting this whole thing going and bringing it to a head that they had a lot of power and sway. And so oh, it yeah. didn't go through. So they basically like, we're not standing down. We're not going to stop until Yanukovych is gone. And then Yanukovych fled for his life and the right. whole thing changed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But it was Yorosh who like spearheaded that. Huge, huge thing. Yeah. You know, you also have like other weird little cells that were involved in the revolution as well as like the Russo-Ukrainian war. So the German National Legion, which was a paramilitary unit uh, formed by mostly ethnic Georgian volunteers who fought on the side of Ukraine during all of the Donbass War, was organized in 2014. So they were fighting mm. kind of as like mercenaries. They were Ukrainian, but like Georgian ethnically. And then in 2016, Ukraine absorbed them into the official Ukrainian army. What group is this? This is the Georgian National Legion. Okay. The unit was organized in 2014, yep. And then under the 25th Mechanized Infantry Battalion called the Kiev Rus. That's one of their, like, premier... Yes. Yeah. And they're noted as being particularly good at recruiting Americans for foreign fighters in Ukraine. Which is wild. I will say these groups have a reputation of being... Like really excellent warriors, and yes. so that probably helps, right? And this attract is the people last, from around the world. The last group is Azov. I ha- that's like the only group I have lots of. And notes Azov on. is the cream of the crop when it comes to these groups, right? Yeah, they are scary to say the least. Yeah, completely. I have a little anecdote quote. Yeah, to s- add some color to this to Azov, or just kind of demonstrate what they're all about. Prior to creating Azov. Its commander and the guy who founded it is named um, Andriy Beletsky, mm-hmm. and he headed another neo-Nazi group called Patriots of Ukraine or Patriot of Ukraine, which they also had uh, political power, significant yep. political power. I think Azov had like three or four seats in 2014 in parliament as well. Patriot of Ukraine definitely had parliamentary yeah. seats. For a while. I want to even... I could have sworn I saw that they were in Parliament today. Yeah. And when I checked that list again today to confirm that, I didn't see them there. And I don't want to sound like a crazy person, but I... I don't know. I must have misread that. But at some point in time, they've had serious political power. 
Anyway, so he founded Patriot of Ukraine before he kind of morphed that into Azov. But he, Beletsky, has stated that the mission of Ukraine, in his eyes, is to, quote, lead the white races of the world in a final crusade for their survival against the semi-led Untermenschen. Ah! End quote. I don't know what Untermenschen is. That sounds like some German Nazi... uh... I, I'm guessing, I feel so bad that I'm this ignorant. I would look that up if, if you can right now. It's a Nazi term for non-Aryan inferior oh, people. Oh, okay. The masses of the East. Gotcha. Ugh. Jews, Romans, Roma, and Slavs. Gross. Yeah, so that's the guy who started Azov. That was his mm-hmm. thing. That's what he believed. Right, and this was formed in 2014. Right. <laughs> so, again, this yeah. is stuff that is too recent to, like, r- I think really have an understanding of. Right. Just, like, I instantly just go to, like, the CIA formed Azov, knowing that something was going to happen in 2014. Like, how, like, this incredible, para- I say incredible loosely, guys, right? This incredible, like, paramilitary group is formed in 2014, early in the year. And then, like, and they're by- excellent fighters. Excellent fighters. There's really well trained. Something like 2,500 members. Great snipers. Yep. Good intelligence. End of the year, everything happens. They are involved in the violence, and then right after the revolution, are absorbed into the National Guard. Well, so they were formed because the whole thing kicked off. I mean, started in like December 2013. Right. So these guys were formed like as this whole thing is happening. Right. Which, you know, so it's like obviously Patriot of Ukraine. Right, was established before. And then was morphed into Azov. Yeah. I wonder if that was like a Western influence. Mm -hmm. We need to rebrand you because Patriot of Ukraine is a notorious neo-Nazi group. So let's rebrand you Azov. Right. And then they got bad PR again. Right. And then they got absorbed into the National Guard. And like we mentioned before, they're like, we got rid of our neo-Nazi problem. See, we're the National Guard now. Right, exactly. And like all they did was get a government paycheck. Which is wild. And so, yeah. And better, even easier access to arms and intelligence. They were formed in 2014 or rebranded May 2014. And by the very beginning of November 2014, they were absorbed into the Ukrainian government. Right. Yeah. So quick. Wild. Quick turnaround. Yeah. And again, to this day, like they are present in Russia. They are fighting on the front lines. They are incredibly well armed they have modern nato weapons they have armored vehicles they have advanced weapon systems like you know air defense missiles artillery tanks like drones probably modern you know western things like night vision right like terrifying no they got a whole lot more now yeah exactly yeah do you have more notes on them or do you want to talk about kind of like that Time Magazine piece and that detail that we were talking about before? Uh, Yeah, I think that's a good, honestly, this is a good under, again, there's a lot of history here, but I think the trend is showing that like this isn't just like a fluke minor thing. This is a 75 year deeply entrenched issue right. in Ukraine. Right. And now I think diving into it just to kind of expand on now why I realize it's actually probably a much bigger issue than we think is that timepiece and starting to understand like 
what Ukraine is for Nazi movement in the world. Yeah. And then I'd like to just, again, close maybe with a little bit of some speculation, which we've already kind of touched on, but yeah, kind of address that and then, yeah. and then maybe call it an evening. So Okay. I, I do want to say one thing real quick. And we said this in our last Ukraine episode, yeah. but, you know, a lot of, you know, the BBC for a while was doing some pretty good reporting on this um, before the current yeah. situation um, on these groups specifically. And they've interviewed some of these people and like gone and like looked at their, you know, they're like, there's these little mini docs where they're like proudly showing off like their training facilities mm-hmm. and like whatever. And so they're interviewing these members of Azov in particular. And, and it's a mix, you know, there's people there who it's like, they clearly are anti-Semitic, right? Yeah. And then there's other people there that are like these young boys, really, that are like 19, you know, and they're like, our government's corrupt and mm-hmm. we want to have like a functional country and we're proud of our heritage and like I want one national identity and like these are people who are actually getting things done. Yeah. I mean that's what you hear of all terrorist organizations around the world recruit yes. disenfranchised people who exactly. feel like their government is failing them. And he- here's an important part of that. Yeah. I believe it's Azov. I don't want to misspeak here. I think it's Azov, not Savota, but it could be Savota. Doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. These are incredibly organized groups. Like, we're talking, they have summer camps for kids that they host. Right, yeah. They have media groups within the state. They have communication facilities. They own businesses. Yeah. They literally have, like, there are parts of Ukraine that, like, the city is, or, you know, at least this was the case following the 2014 coup, or like they are the police yes, force. Yes, they are operating as police. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Blessed by the government, like. Well, I think the government used them. I think they were used, and and you know they were used mm-hmm. to to expel Yanukovych, and yeah. then it was like, ooh, we have this problem, and we need to like, I guess, keep them close instead yeah. of you know turning on them. Yeah. Right. So. Hosting events concerts right to bring people in from all across the world yeah you know this this goes in the time thing but like i think it's azov that claims that they've recruited 17 as of 2022 or 2021 recruited 17,000 members in 56 countries 50 50 countries to to join their movement in ukraine coming from yeah. out of ukraine into ukraine to to join in quote the cause yeah yeah, Time Magazine, um, we'll link to this, yeah. reported that as of January 2021, mm-hmm. so over a year, a year and yeah. a half ago, more than 17,000 foreign fighters from 50 countries have come to Ukraine in the last six years. Yeah. That's, you know, and then when you're talking about a country of millions of people, like, I guess that is a drop in the bucket, but like, but it's kind of impressive that they got 17,000 people. 17,000 people. From and around the world. That doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're talking about a well-funded, well-organized trained group i mean there could be forty thousand members in ukraine right a forty thousand person military with all of the modern technology available yeah is a force to be reckoned with right right and they're just a they're a part of the ukrainian military right like it's not as if that's all they have right obviously um so since the beginning of the current war 
the recruitment of mercenaries has been official government policy. So at the end of February this year, Zelensky announced the creation of an international legion. Um, and he said, made a public statement saying, quote, if you have combat experience, you can join us and defend Europe with us. So, so now. Uh, that's getting marketing. They're welcoming. Defend can, Europe. Well, right. Yeah. It has to be a. Yeah, yeah of course. They've got to yeah. pitch it as oh. a threat to the rest of the continent. Right. Otherwise, I mean, they're not NATO members. We do not have an obligation. No, not To do all. anything. Yeah. Anyway, and and then ba- there's accounts from the U.S., from Canada, U.K., France, Germany. There are known ex-military joining, going to Ukraine to fight. And it's basically been like there's, you know, public statements when people are questioned on it. And they're just kind of like, you know, foreign ministers being mm-hmm. like, if they want to go and do that, like, good on them. We're not sending troops, but like, right, yeah, yeah, these people can go on their own free will. Yeah. So that's it's happening. There's lots of people oh, yeah. going and joining. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that's a mix. I'm sure there's people who are like. This is a threat to democracy and I'm going to go and see what happens. And then there's probably like a whole host of people who are like actually plugged in and recognize like, oh, this is a call to arms. And like, this yep. is like the battle right. for our, you know, Aryan race or whatever that, you know, right for their ideology. Another little anecdote about that. According to Foreign Minister um, Dimitro Kuleba, 20,000 volunteers from 52 countries had registered to help fight uh, by early March of this year. Really? 20,000. 52 countries. That's a lot. Many, if not most, have come from Georgia and Belarus, mm-hmm. which is makes sense, right? Because... Yeah. Russia rolled through and destroyed those places, right? Yep, I yep. mean, well, Belarus is still under their like puppet, right? Right, ex-Soviet guy. But, but what they did in Georgia was atrocious, right? So, like, there's a huge resistance there. So, yeah, they've gone and joined up with the Ukrainians, according to the Ukrainian embassy in Washington in D.C. Up to three thousand volunteers in the U.S. have yep. gone. That's that's a lot. The thing is, is too, like war has changed, especially since you know World War Two. Like <laughs> three thousand people is a lot in modern war. Frankly, like if you're trained and 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 whatnot, like that's a lot of that's a lot of soldiers. I had some information on um, kind of Western sentiment towards these groups prior to the current fighting. Yeah, that I think is very telling. So after Azov was absorbed into the Ukrainian National Guard, some Western nations sort of became more aware of their Nazi ties. Um, and there was a bipartisan coalition in the U.S. Uh, that put forth legislation to prevent the U.S. from providing aid and training to that unit. Congress debated this openly. Yes, they did. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a public debate. Mm-hmm. And it was bipartisan. And it, it was like possible. Yeah. And then the Pentagon basically lobbied against that effort. Right. Um, And I have an excerpt from the Jerusalem Post that I'd like to read from January 2016 that we will link to in our show notes. So, again, this is January 2016. So last June would have been June 2015. uh, Congress passed a resolution intended to block American military funding for Ukraine from being used to provide training or weaponry for the Azov Battalion an independent unit unit that had been integrated into the former Soviet Republic's National Guard and was taking part in operations against Russian-backed rebels. 
called a neo-Nazi parliamentary militia by Congressman John Conyers Jr. and Ted Yoho, who co-sponsored the bipartisan amendment, the battalion has been a source of controversy since its inception. With the neo-Nazi Wolf Sengel symbol on its unit flash, which resembles a black swastika on a yellow background, and founders drawn from the ranks of paramilitary national socialist groups called Patriot of Ukraine, the group would have been a fringe phenomenon in any Western nation, but with its army unequipped to face the separatist threat in the East, Kiev actually integrated Azov into its military forces. According to a report in The Nation, the Pentagon lobbied, which, again, this is The Nation reporting Mm -hmm. this, which they're, you know, have their own political bias. But anyway, according to a report in The Nation, the Pentagon lobbied the House Defense Appropriations Committee to remove the Conyers-Yoho Amendment from the 2016 defense budget, claiming it was unnecessary as such funding was already prohibited under another law. However, the nation asserted that the, the, the law in question, known as the, Le- the Leahy Law, only prohibits funding to groups that have, quote, committed a gross violation of human rights, end quote, which would not apply in this case. The news that the Azov Battalion is now legally able to receive American aid has enraged the Simon Weissenthal Center, which is like a Jewish mm-hmm. community and kind of like heritage group. Um, so it enraged the Simon Weissenthal Center, which last week successfully blocked the battalion from holding a recruitment meeting in Nance, France. I probably just totally butchered the name of that <laughs> Nance, city. France. <laughs> Nance, France. Yeah. <laughs> Got a nice ring. <laughs> Okay. This is why the French hate Americans. <laughs> I know, so, I'm sorry. Get an easier language, bro. Okay, so let me, okay I'm almost done with this. Uh, quote, this step is hardly surprising to anyone who has been following the growing danger of Holocaust distortion in post-communist Europe, and especially in the Baltics, Ukraine, and Hungary, said Weissenthal Center Jerusalem office head Ephraim Zaroth. Quote, in recent years, the United States has per- has purposely ignored the glorification of Nazi collaborators, the granting of financial benefits to those who fought alongside the Nazis, and the systematic promotion of the canard of equivalency between communist and Nazi crimes by these countries because of the various political interests, end quote. So, again, there was enough knowledge about this and who Azov was Mm -hmm. that Congress passed an amendment to, like, not fund them yeah and then somehow likely pentagon lobbying that was left out yeah and we fund them yes yeah billions yeah a lot yeah um i have more on that the un and the human rights watch have accused azov as well as as well as other kiev battalions of like a litany of human rights abuses i have a story linked that really just shows how gross both sides are in the fighting in the East. It's oh yeah, like they're horrible. To it's horrible. I don't even know how communities like survive there. In 2016, that same group, the Simon Weissenthal Center, caught Azov trying to recruit people in France. Um, and then Brazilian authorities also uncovered similar attempts in Brazil. We have both of those links in our show notes. Yep. And then this is present day information. So Facebook had previously banned Azov from its platform and would flag posts discussing Azov. Once the current war broke out, Facebook made an exception. And this is their new policy. They say, 
For the time being, we are making a narrow exception for praise of the Azov regiment oh strictly in the context strictly in the context of defending Ukraine or in their role as part of the Ukrainian National Guard. That's what a spokesperson from Facebook's parent company Meta told Business Insider. For the time being. The time being. It's just it's so it's, bonkers. It's crazy. Like I know. Just the just it's it's just wild, especially in in this country, in the United States, where like the claim is that like white supremacy and like Nazis are like the biggest threat in the United States, right? Right. But then like those same people will be like, hell yeah, we should send forty billion dollars. That's going to go directly into the hands of actual Hitler loving Nazis. Oh my God! Well, here one of the it's- like look, some backwoods KKK members are going to show up to a rally like somewhere and there's going to be like seven people that show up and they're degenerates but but we're willing to arm like tens of thousands right of of nazis well in foreign countries and like Like, look at you know what happened in buffalo that kid was clearly i mean i we don't know yet wouldn't be surprised if he was radicalized by groups like this yes online right he we know he was a part of like kind of like underbelly internet like 4chan white nationalist groups that had like an international community we know that he did log on to a what's that platform that we used to use with henning to communicate discord discord yeah Yeah, yeah. discord channel that he logged on to and was communicating with people turns out one of those people was a former fbi agent so that's neat but he you know he goes in and he's clearly been radicalized and race for racially motivated reasons racist reasons goes and shoots up a you know predominantly black supermarket Mm -hmm. that's horrific there's a connection between these two things and to your point the fact that like you know and we should fight that where we see it in our own communities Mm -hmm. but if we're at the same time stoking the thing that's potentially this kid is logging on to and being radicalized by how are we ever going to solve that problem and this is something that ties into like reading a bunch of these articles, listening to like anti-war has a ton of great articles on what's going on. That timepiece is incredible. Mm-hmm. Like I, didn't, I had no idea. Like I'm not saying this lightly. Like Ukraine is a hotbed for recruiting and radicalizing Nazis around the world. Around the world. Yeah. Like links to things in the United States. Right. Charlotte. Well, yeah. The Charlottesville. Yep. Killing. Yep. Yep. Direct links to Ukraine. Uh, do you want to? I have some info on I think that. We should if we want to go that. there, I think yeah. we should. Okay, so there was an so after the Charlottesville, there was the the white nationalists showed up and had a counter protest, right? And then someone wound up driving a car into the crowd and they fought and mm-hmm. people were killed. So after that, there was an indictment filed in L.A. that claimed that four American members of the Rise Above movement or RAM had violently attacked and assaulted counter protesters. So they were sort of being held as responsible for instigating this whole thing. Um, And they had done this at multiple white nationalist rallies across the country, including the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. The three members were co-founder Robert Rundo, as well as Robert Bowman, Tyler Lobb, and Aaron Eason. So four, sorry, not three. The RAM members were alleged to have used the internet to court, and this is these are quotes from the indictment, and I we can, I actually, we got a link to that too. So yeah. if you want to read that, you can. Um, they were 
alleged to have used the internet to coordinate combat training in preparation for the events and to have celebrated their acts of violence in order to recruit members for future events. Court documents refer to RAM as a white supremacy extremist group, while the group describes itself as a combat-ready militant group of a new nationalist white supremacy identity movement. So I don't see how there's a difference there. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, indi- the indictment focuses on RAM leader Rundo's 28 trip to Europe, where he traveled to Germany, Ukraine, and Italy to, quote, meet with members of European white supremacy extremist groups. The FBI claims that one of the individuals with whom Rundo had met during this trip was Olena Semenyaka, a leader of the International Department for National Corps, a Ukrainian political party that was formed as an offshoot of the Azov Battalion in 2016. The affidavit detailing Rundo's meeting with Semenyaka, there's fo- you can look her up, there's photos of her with like holding Nazi flags, mm-hmm. holding swastikas, doing Nazi salutes, like she's a fucking Nazi. So the affidavit says that in his meeting with her uh, and this whole thing was signed like, well, it's a legal doc. And of course, you know, fuck the FBI. But anyway, there's a lot of evidence here suggesting that this that this, uh, you know, I mean, this guy was interviewed and admitted to this stuff. So the affidavit details that when Rundo met with her, the Azov Battalion, it described the Azov Battalion as a parliamentary unit of the Ukrainian National Guard, which is known for its association with neo-Nazi ideology and use of Nazi symbolism. Um, And then it goes on to say that uh, the Azov Battalion is, quote, believed to have participated in training and radicalizing United States based white supremacy organizations such as RAM. Mm -hmm. And there are you can dig into this. There's ties to you pointed this out um, Mm -hmm. in our previous episode to uh, the Christ child. Was it? Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Christ church um, massacre at a mosque. Correct. Yeah. Um, that that guy had been connected and trained by Azov. Azov. Yes. Yeah. So there's a house across from the co-op. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's like the co-op, it's wokeness spreads. And like all yeah. the, na- the homes closest to it are like the wokest. Ho- right. You know, they got yeah. every sign and flag. Yeah. And one of the houses now has a Black Lives Matter, like a homemade Black Lives Matter sign in their window. In Ukrainian colors. Yeah. Granted. Obviously, those people don't knowingly support neo-Nazis. Right. But every time I drive past that sign, I can't help but think of, like, the contradiction and the complication of these two things. Exactly. And it's the same thing with, like, you know, the LGB colors, like, including the Ukrainian flag. And gay marriage is outlawed in Ukraine. Right. Yeah. And then, like, (laughs) the other thing is, like... And then, you know, a, you know, the just the the picture of like, yeah, Ukraine is like this liberty fighter. And like I said, like I'm I don't want Ukraine. I don't want innocent Ukrainian people to be slaughtered. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> but like they're in the top 10 list of most corrupt countries in the world. Ukraine ranks like seven. Oh, yeah. They're notorious. They yeah. always have been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's like it's just again. This is our whole like things like trying to add more depth to these conversations and not be so quick to jump into like, you know, the current thing. Be careful what you put in your windows and (laughs) yeah, for sure. Careful what stickers you put on your house or like it was funny. It's funny. And I say that loosely, like literally like, you know, overnight Russia invades and it's like Azov shirts being sold on Amazon. I know. And you're well, like, that's where how many people are walking around with Azov merch right now? On accident. Because they were like, oh, yeah, 
freedom fighters in Ukraine. Right. Well, but that, also there was one, you know, you know, one swastika flag at like the truck rally in Canada. Which was probably a plant. That got booed and kicked out, right? Yeah, they so kicked like, the guy out. The protesters did. Right. Yeah, and you're just like, okay, bigger picture but here. But they're all white nationalists. Right. Even the people who aren't white that were participating in yes, that. Yes. Yeah. That's another, I, this whole conversation just kind of sparked this thought, but the speed with which, to your point, yeah. but seemingly the entire u.s like you know every institution from corporations to media to government just like in lockstep it had the same message the same you know uh rallying cry like it was really coordinated and there are movements happening right now that people are like fighting to the death for their freedom Mm-hmm. And nowhere, and we don't care. We don't get this animated about it, right? And I think we'll get into this when we go to present day. Like in terms of the institutions, there's a whole other incentive structure there. But I wonder how many, how much of this is subconsciously fueled by like whatever nationalist white supremacist groups are in the U.S. Like how many of them are like online trolls that are helping spur. And creating memes and I don't know yeah, no, that are yeah, like connected yeah. to Azov and are like in these other groups. And, you know, so that's why it has seems to rise to the surface more than. Right. Right. It has. The other thing, too, is like, you know, these other places that we're talking about are just like parts of the world that the West isn't interested in, frankly. Yeah, that's true. And the thing is, is like we just drop bombs there. We Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We know. Like the struggle between the west nato and russia right we've we've gone through this history sure. yeah of right course, of course. like that's a concern and the thing is we also now i think and again i feel like i've been like fooled like i feel like a a, a, a absolute idiot like it seems like mainstream media because there's articles good articles from all these different sources as far as you know 2000 you know six writing about nazis in, mm-hmm. in the country and like I didn't even know about it, right? Right. And the United States is directly responsible for it, right? Essentially, I mean, if you want to call people Nazi sympathizers, like the U.S. is, in this case, yeah. And part of that is like the unfortunate scale at which, like, FBI and CIA have no no one to be beholden to, and so that's why you right. have things like FBI reports investigating FBI. Right, 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 yeah. Or CIA reporting on, like, CIA doing stuff that, you know, or Pentagon undermining, like, the wishes of Congress. Yeah. Through lobbying and things like that. It's like, it's this big monster monstrosity of a corrupt, evil organization that, like, the good it might do, I don't think outweighs the bad. But, like, yeah, the U.S. is is a Nazi sympathizer. That's a hell of a statement. <laughs> Unfortunately, right? But I think, yeah, in practical terms, you can make that conclusion. Yeah. One thing I'll say about just the reporting on this, mm-hmm. because it seemed like during the uprising there in 2014, there was a pretty concerted effort, right, to like promote it and present it in really binary terms. Right. And then about a year or so after that, not even six, nine months after that and years following there 
seemed to be more curiosity about these nationalist groups. And that's when the BBC started doing their little documentaries mm-hmm. and, you know, Politico and the yeah. Journal and whoever else, right? Vice was doing a bunch of Vice, stuff. Yep. Yeah. And then the other trend I've noticed, and this isn't, you know, a panacea, but kind of broad stroke trend I've noticed is when the Obama administration was in power, which they were during the uprising mm-hmm. 2014, uh, most of the criticisms about our involvement came from the right. Yep. You know, Cato Institute was writing stuff, criticizing the whole fucking thing and how involved we were. Right. Then, as soon as Trump gets into power, ton of these outlets on the left are now like, there's Nazis in Ukraine, you know? Yeah. And whereas before, maybe they were willing to overlook that. So that, there's just kind of this obnoxious I, bias. And that's why I think there's such a shift and a push to kind of ignore it right now is because the U.S. is aware of it. Major media has been aware of it yeah. for like almost 20 years. Right. And there's elections coming up. Totally. And it's just, you can't address it, honestly. Yeah. And so you just manipulate and lie until people forget about it. Totally. I get a daily newsletter from The Dispatch, which is what Jonah Goldberg, who used to be like a Republican commentator with Mm -hmm. like, I think he was with, I think he was with the Weekly Standard. Um, and he kind of broke away during the Trump years and was like, kind of fuck the Republican Party. And he's done his own thing. I don't agree with everything he comes out with, but he he's a very like, he's a thoughtful person. And this newsletter is great. And so he always has kind of like a worth your time section. And this today, he included an excerpt and a link to a piece in Law and Liberty um, by a uh, Northwestern Law School professor, John McGinnis. So I'm just going to read the quote from his piece. So John McGinnis wrote, One of the greatest challenges for a republic is whether citizens, including elites and politicians, are willing to put institutional preservation over their immediate policy and political goals. That willingness is always being tested because people can rationalize that the institutional cost will be paid in the future while the policy and political gains may be enjoyed now. An institutional fidelity becomes particularly difficult in times of political polarization when many on each side of the aisle believe that the policies and politics of the other side are not only wrong, but evil. Why preserve institutional norms if you are confident that your opponents will soon eviscerate them? It is always easier to undermine traditional norms than to restore them. But I believe that there are at least two ways to help in the rebuilding. And he's not talking about Ukraine, obviously, but this, our conversation sparked, like reminded me of this quote, because to the point you're making, Torna, like we're willing our institutions right now are willing to overlook this really inconvenient reality for short-term political gain. And not even gain, but just to like maintain. Right. Right. It would it would be a problem for them politically. So we're not going to fucking talk about it. And the Republicans are down with that too. Cuz how do you yeah. cuz it's it's a whole mess of a thing that you have to explain and and then you have to go back decades. And then I mean, the American people would completely just they would start to question everything, right? So maybe in some sense they're trying to maintain their institutions, but I also see it as for this short-term political gain, we're willing to do things that will undermine us in the long run. Oh, yeah. And it's just incredibly, it's a really, it's a bad gamble. And it's insane to me because it's like, how many times have we learned this lesson? You know? 
all of our meddling around the world comes back to bite us in the form of terrorists blowing up the World Trade Center or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying I like am staunchly not one of those people that thinks like every problem in the world is America's fault. I think that's like a wildly naive and self-centered shallow view of the world there's all kinds of people who have their own thoughts and ideas and beliefs and they're not under the thumb of america you know like we aren't we are not the center of the world no not at all but we are really wealthy and we are really powerful and we are really influential and we do have our hands in a lot of shit yeah and we tend because life is inevitably messy And the enemy of my enemy is my friend for now, but eventually he's blowing my cities up in a decade from now. Like that game we play and I think we're playing it again right now. Yeah. So, yes, that's a good question. What what is the next decade look like? Yeah. You know, it's easy to look at it, especially as mainstream media has been looking at it and say, yes, you know. There's a Nazi problem, but it's like it's not that big a deal or it's right. propaganda, Russian propaganda, fill in the blank. Like, yeah, you can say that in the scheme of things, it's not a big deal. But when you start looking at the numbers that we're discussing, like. We're talking of tens of thousands, and I'm thinking like upwards of 100,000, like just in Ukraine of 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 ultra-nationalists. Right. And you can say like, oh yeah, they're not all neo-Nazis. But as we mentioned, like these groups, like the Caliphate and, and other extremist groups that have immense abilities of coercing people. Also, these groups that have been trained by the CIA in how to coerce people are able to, as we mentioned before, look at some of these people that probably are not Nazis, but are very nationalistic. Right. And they can manipulate. And it's not, I don't even know if it's manipulation to say, hey, you want to free Ukraine, but in the last 75 years or 100 years realistically, there's never been a free Ukraine. It's been a NATO US puppet regime or it's been a Russia puppet regime. Yeah. And frankly, Zelensky is just a US puppet regime. That's what he is. He's like some actor dude. That yeah. is good for PR. I, I have a little tip. I don't know what his qualifications are. I have a tip. Well, he played president. Yeah, I know. Which is a whole other like weird like. It's just odd. Yeah. And I don't think he's bad. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he's a bad yeah. guy, but. but so. I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's a good guy. I mean, he's, he's, fair. I he's, don't he's know that trying either. to push an open war with a nuclear power and drag the entire West into it. No, he is. I that, know. That seems evil. Well, okay, so here's... And, and again, yeah. it's like two evil forces. No, like, totally. Well, so, yeah, he... And that is now people are starting to be like, oh, yeah, well... Yeah, even the U.S. is like, oh, that's... The way. Yeah, <laughs> the U.S. and NATO are like, well, we do need to eventually yeah. agree to a ceasefire, and we do mm-hmm. need to de-escalate this, and we need to figure this out before winter comes because we don't have an alternative to Russian fuel, and, like, all of Europe will freeze. So, like, right. we have to figure this out. And Zelensky is basically like, we're not ceding any territory and we're also going back for the territory we lost. They yeah. want he wants to take Crimea back. Mm-hmm. So which historically is Russian territory. Like it just is. Yeah. Right. And, so and like, it's like it's one of these things where like maybe Putin's a warmonger and maybe Zelensky's a warmonger. Well, so I read something today and yeah. I'm going to throw this out there mm-hmm. and encourage anybody like let's all 
do figure it out together mm-hmm. and do our own research. But something I read today from an admittedly like pretty left wing quasi socialist out like I don't know what it was Workers Daily or something yeah. stupid outlet. But anyway, <laughs> um, they said I'm just going to read the excerpt. After President Zelensky's election in 2019, the extreme right threatened him with removal from office or even death if he negotiated with separatist leaders from Donbass and followed through on the Minsk Protocol, which we haven't mentioned that. But in 2015, basically, Western leaders and Russia came together and they came. Well, Russia wasn't happy about it, but they came up with the Minsk Protocol in 2015. And it was supposed to negotiate a ceasefire in the eastern Donbass region. And it didn't. Fighting kept going. But anyway. But people on both on the hardcore sides of both spectrums were like they viewed that as just kind of like a weak sellout thing and didn't support it. So I'll continue with this segment. Zelensky had run for election as peace as a peace candidate, but under threat from the right, he refused to even talk to Donbass leaders whom he dismissed as terrorists. So this piece Mm -hmm. is alleging that Zelensky came to power wanting to like negotiate some kind of settlement and these ultranationalist groups basically who have a lot of influence and power and mm-hmm. in terms of physical might threatened him yeah so because people are always like well he's jewish why is he there right. aren't nazis he's jewish well they already had absorbed the neo-nazi groups into their military and of course they're willing to expend them on the eastern front why would they not have them go fight on the eastern oh, front yeah totally right well, okay, and this, and so, this, uh, I think we're probably in a good spot to kind of, kind of wrap up, right? Yeah, yeah. Totally. This, this goes back to just a few minutes ago when I, when I was talking about, you know, their, their efforts to recruit people, and that there's nationalists that kind of get absorbed into this. This is a deep entrenched history that doesn't lead to anything good, because these extremist groups, these neo Nazis, have honestly for seventy five years been shedding their blood for the sake of, in quote, defending Ukraine. And if you have people like Bandera that become national heroes, you have a group of tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of extremists that are on the front line defending the country. They're already open to people like Bandera. That puts them in a point of leverage. Right. To, exactly. If this gets resolved, say, We're, we are the heroes of this country. Mm-hmm. We've been shedding our blood. Yeah, they're going to demand for power. almost a hundred years. Yeah, and now we have a group that are the most experienced in military. Mm-hmm. We have things like Azov that got absorbed into the National Guard. You have people in Parliament. You have these deeply entrenched people that it opens up these dark corners to start building these these strong foundations that are only going to allow these groups to rise to serious power when the time arises. And like we said, like the groups that have a, you know, these groups that praise people that have a history of dragging children and women out of their homes and murdering them, like (laughs) that kind of evil and determination knows no bounds, right? Right. The most, the most entrenched radicalism knows no bounds. Right. So it's a foolish game to think that that can be controlled, even though that's the game that we've played for close to a hundred years. And it's just, it's worrisome to know that like, it's our funding, our training and our arming of these groups that is potentially going 
to lead to some serious conflict in the future. That's going to hurt more innocent people. Right. And if even if it's yeah. just 20 people here, 20 people there every decade, but if it also leads to mm-hmm. terrorist acts on our shores, yeah. that's also horrific. Yeah. And, and, and this is the important thing to realize. These groups, ultranationalists, neo-Nazi, any other form of, you know, that vein of ideology, you know, they're, they're enemies of Russia, right? Right. Deeply trenched history, enemies of Russia, but they're also enemies of the West. Yeah, I was going to say, there are people in Ukraine who want democracy, of course. Yeah. These nationalist groups, even if some of the members aren't Nazis mm-hmm. or aren't even anti-Semitic or aren't even white yeah. nationalists, their ties are to neither the U.S. or Russia. No, but the, and they're also they they are fascistic. Yes, like they don't want representative government. They don't want to put a popular vote. They they want to have their control. Yes, right, and like that is not conducive with a free and prosperous society. So like these people cannot get control. It will be disastrous. It will be disastrous. And then the other thing is like you know with the consideration of you know, wanting them to become a member of NATO, like they become a member of NATO. What happens when there's a, a Nazi rising within a NATO power? Yeah, and then we have to NATO's go to- NATO's never had to deal with going to war with another NATO member. No, could you imagine? No, that would be so foolish if we allowed that to happen because this battle with Russia is never going to end. Mm-hmm. It's not. They're gonna be fighting this out to the end of time. Right. Like these are such deeply rooted hatred for each other that like this shit's going to go on forever and it's going to have flare ups like it has right now. And it's going to have lulls. But like this animosity is going to continue to boil. If they if Ukraine was allowed to join NATO, they're Mm -hmm. still going to have this like cancerous problem. That is going to be instigating or retaliating in war with Russia. And as soon as that happens and they're a NATO member, then we're all at war with Russia. Then it's a nuclear war. Then it's, you know, the end of the world to some extent. So like that would be. And there's people who are. Talking about gung-ho. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. Like to the point of like, oh, if you're not for that. You love Putin. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And there, you know, in theory is supposed to be some like rules around who can join Mm -hmm. NATO. Right. And like. Part of it is you have to bring like a real, you know, military capability because it's not just a free ride, which Ukraine can obviously do that. Of course, we're subsidizing it. So, right. Whatever. It's a free ride kind of. Yeah. But you're also supposed to have like a fairly uncorrupt, seemingly legitimate right. government. And they don't have that. No. Like I said, top 10 worst. <laughs> right. So, you know, I don't think that will happen, but yeah. that would be a huge mistake. But there's a lot of really kind of escalatory, dangerous rhetoric being thrown around. It's starting to kind of cool down. I'm noticing it's just like everybody was just hot under the collar as this started. Um, and it seems like kind of cooler heads are starting to prevail. But I'm sure there are many more bad decisions yeah. to be made. So, again, just encourage everyone, you know, this is why we did wait a little while to get into this topic and try to dive into these deep, difficult, you know, rabbit trails, essentially, that that open more context into the conversation. But like, again, it's just, we always want to encourage people to be very weary of just going 
full in on something. Like we live in a very interconnected and complicated world and nothing seems nothing ever is as it seems like it takes a lot of time for the unfortunately it takes a lot of time for the truth to come to the surface a lot of times you know you're willing to brush an inconvenient truth an inconvenient truth under the rug for the sake of the greater good and like just guard yourself from that and you have to take the hard stance sometimes and and i think take a position like we are where it's like you you need to obviously be sympathetic and obviously we care very deeply about the innocent people in ukraine and i care very deeply about the innocent people in russia that are being basically rejected by the rest of the world for nothing that they've done right so all yeah. these things you have to keep in mind and you need to not be afraid to call out the problems and and open up the conversation right and like we said you you can be hard on both sides of this conflict and i think that's the solution because all of these problems are compounding and unless you can be open and honest about the darkness present the darkness will grow well said. Think about it. Research it. Read about it. I mean, this is dark. This is heavy. But there is a lot of very important, interesting history, you know, that I think is worth exploring and understanding. Start with those show notes. Yeah. Dive in. Like I said, definitely read the political article. It's awesome. Um, the, the Politico one. The political one, yeah. And the Times one, yep. too. And the That's Times great. are really good. Also, great articles from uh, Britannica that I will link. Just interesting history in the World War II era. As always, thank you for listening. You know, I think our next conversation that's long format is going to be diving into more current situation. And I think we definitely want to discuss Russia a little bit. We probably could do a whole other series just on the Russia perspective of this. Um, oh, my God. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned for that. <laughs> as always, hang out with us online. Check us out on Instagram. Hop on Twitter. If you want to keep up with us. As we mentioned at the beginning. Anyone that wants stickers, you can get stickers. You can buy stickers. You can buy stickers, which is exciting. Um, we also have coffee now for sale at the Highline Network website. Yep. Which is Scrum Diddlyumptious. Linked in our Instagram link tree. Yes. So hop on, have some fun with us, and we will catch you next time for a news and brews. Cheers. Cheers. What happens when a Christianish agnostic, a liturgical post-Christian, and a female Methodist pastor walk into a podcast? You get Ravel. One in three people will experience a faith crisis in their life. Faith unraveling is often unexpected and lonely. It can quickly feel like everything is falling apart just from asking a single question. Like, does the Bible assume magic is real? 
does being pro-life mean more than anti-abortion? Or how should faith inform how we eat? Whether you're deconstructing, reconstructing, deconverting, converting, growing beyond toxic theology, or just asking questions, we're here to be with you along the way. Each Wednesday, we have a drink and pull on one thread concerning faith in the modern world. Listen to us on the Highline Media Network. Highline Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.